Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's July 28th, 1858, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was on this day in 1858 that a British colonial magistrate in India, a guy called William James Herschel, began using fingerprints as a means of identifying people. And he didn't initially use it in the way that we currently understand for fingerprints to be used in a sort of criminal setting. But the first way he used it was that he had drawn up this contract with a local man, a guy called Rajyada Kanai, for the supply of uh, some road construction materials. And in order to prevent this guy Kanai from denying later that the signature was his, he made him put his handprint mm. on the document. And it wasn't kind of his idea, this thing itself. He, he didn't come up with the idea that hand or fingerprints were unique to every single individual, but he came up with the idea that you could use them as a sort of means of identification at a later date. Apparently, the fingerprints were used in ancient Babylon to sign contracts, and they were also used in China in like the Dark Ages. Well, I mean, I guess they probably weren't as dark in China. It kind of sounds like they were on top of things. The earliest (laughs) reference I could find, though, was a case that was written up by an ancient Roman jurist called Quintilian, who cited a case where a man was acquitted of his father's murder because there were bloody palm prints on the wall of the bedroom where he was murdered, which did not match his hands. And he managed to convince the court that the stepmother was the one who was guilty. I think the actual key piece of evidence was the fact that the the man was supposedly blind and he pointed out that he'd have been feeling the wall with his hands rather than just slapping them there randomly. (laughs) And I thought that was like, I I mean, obviously... You know, the concept of fingerprints being identical was not yet known, but definitely the idea that like you could use body parts and mm. measurements was definitely pop- like floating around in the, in the ether for, for hundreds of years. One slightly odd thing in the development of the understanding of fingerprints was that there was a guy called Henry Folds. He was a doctor and a missionary, and he was interested in fingerprints. And he used fingerprint evidence to exonerate a man who was accused of breaking into his hospital. And he wrote a paper on it for the journal Nature in 1880. He also wrote to his cousin, Charles Darwin, to say, hey, maybe you're interested in this. And he kind of went... Eh. I'm a bit busy. Yeah. He sent this on to another cousin, Francis Galton, who was a, a polymath and made a lot of advances in a lot of fields, but is also now quite reviled for being a massive eugenicist. And he was so interested, he wrote this enormous book in 1892 called Fingerprints. That kind of the point of him writing it was he wanted to prove that there was a difference between the races. And he had to admit that he had done all this work and he couldn't find any evidence of that at all. Mm. There's nothing sadder than a sad eugenicist. (laughs) (laughs) And that book helped to establish the idea that fingerprints are completely unique. 
So I thought it'd be interesting to look at the first time that fingerprint evidence was used in a successful court case in the UK. It was in 1902, so it was, quick maths, eight years after the police started taking fingerprints of criminals, and it was used as critical evidence to solve the theft of some billiard balls. (laughs) A a worthy enterprise. (laughs) And unfortunately, the thief had left his fingerprints on a recently painted windowsill as he made his escape. They had to manually compare his fingerprints to every single set of fingerprints they'd taken. But they did find him, and luckily that Mm. dangerous man was taken off the streets. (laughs) I mean, there must have been so much rubbish in that house if the best thing that he could take after he'd gone to the trouble of opening that pane glass window (laughs) with his greasy, greasy fingers was some billiard balls and making off with those. He must have been so disappointed. (laughs) And there's one use of fingerprinting which was incredibly labour-intensive and successful. In 1948, a three-year-old girl called June Ann Devani was abducted from a hospital and murdered in Blackburn. And the police ordered every man over the age of 16 to submit their fingerprints to solve the case. And they took 46,000 fingerprints, but they found the killer among them. He was a 22-year-old guy called Peter Griffith, and he was then hanged on the basis of this. Wow, that's like a sort of early GCHQ data sweep. Some scientists, though, say that ears could be better IDs than fingers. I've heard about this. Because apparently your your print can rub off your fingers, like in unusual cases, but in the case of extreme manual labour, so it probably doesn't apply to podcasters, but in the case of extreme manual labour, <laughs> you can lose parts of the tips of your fingers and then you don't have your fingerprint anymore. Although you'd oh, yeah. think you'd then have a pretty unique set of fingerprints, wouldn't you? But anyway, um, you don't have your fingerprint anymore. So now with all the CCTV that's everywhere, if you have a profile shot of someone, apparently their ear is more likely to be identifiable than their fingers. When you're born, your ear is fully formed, and the lobe descends a bit, but overall it stays the same. Huh. I can't believe that really accounts for old man's ears that are like <laughs> six inches longer and covered in hair, but apparently it does. You're quite unlikely to leave your ear behind at the scene of a crime, though, aren't you? <laughs> Do you know, prior to fingerprints being discovered, what the police used was this thing called the Bertillon system, which was created by Alphonse Bertillon in France, which is the system that gave us the mugshot. What they used to do was, in addition to taking the mugshot, you know, profile, head-on, they also used to take 11 bodily measurements, facial features, birthmarks, scars, tattoos, and this was universalised across European police forces and then in America as well. Because before that, there wasn't any system at all, apart from writing down the guy's name to work out whether he could have committed a prior crime. Whereas this way they could say, well, we know that the guy who did it had a scar on his forehead and was five foot ten. And then all of that was recorded, and that was called the Bertillon system. It was quite a clever idea, but the problem was that several of the measurements that were included in the system were directly correlated with an individual's height. So it wasn't as unique as fingerprints. Mm. Like, actually, it was you, you, mm. you got a chance of four to one of two people being the same height... And it doesn't necessarily get diluted by how far their nose is from the back of their head, because that would apply to everyone of that height. And it does make a lot of intuitive sense. You can imagine why, like, detailing a person's, like, physique and uh, identifiable features would be useful for solving crimes. But it still depends on eyewitnesses. And I suppose that's the thing that fingerprints don't do, you know, that they're these semi-invisible marks that you leave around the place in your daily life when you just you know, touching things. And it's that that makes an even more compelling form of evidence because you can, you know, have a crime scene, go all around it, find the fingerprints and then start matching it to individuals and their and their hands. Imagine- 
imagine that you've been committing serious crimes and then you hear that they've got this new mm-hmm. technology you must have been absolutely crapping yourself like what a, what a mm. terrifying moment that must have been for all of the criminals when they realized that this was a thing at the time apparently they started to sand their fingerprints off which you know um has been a sort of trope in fiction ever since but it just doesn't work it didn't work then and it doesn't work now because there is a fallibility isn't there to fingerprint evidence i saw a case in 1998 in which an american guy richard jackson uh, was sentenced to life in prison for murder based largely on a fingerprint match because three fingerprint experts had testified that it was his and then after he spent two years in prison the prosecution conceded they made an error and he was freed and the question wasn't like how likely is it really that two fingerprints could be exactly alike the question is whether they'd be similar enough to fool a fingerprint examiner and Mm. if a fingerprint examiner says well they look similar enough to me that is fallible the whole business of fingerprinting is fallible because you often get partial fingerprints collected at the scene of the crime and then there is an element to which they can be linked to a person through uh, computers but then more often than not they actually have a person who comes in and gives the final verdict on the whole business who's a fingerprint expert as you were saying Ollie but but DNA has now replaced a whole lot of that because it's so much less fallible and yet it still has its own problems easy to plant isn't it right you can easily take someone's hair and leave it somewhere yeah exactly and also did you guys know that koalas have fingerprints (laughs) (laughs) you make it sound like they're inherently suspicious i just have to make sure that our aussie audience is still (laughs) paying attention (laughs) so obviously monkeys also have uh fingerprints but koalas are particularly weird because their last common ancestor with humans was a good 160 million years ago. So it's weird that they have also kind of got the same physiological thing going on in their fingertips. I mean, I'm now thinking what crime that a koala could commit would be worthwhile (laughs) the Australian police creating a database of koala fingerprints for. But if that crime existed, it's almost worth it to make the true crime documentary about it, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It would be like cute and terrifying. (laughs) Tomorrow, probably a Nazi sympathizer and probably a repressed homosexual and all of those things. Nonetheless, love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.